Welcome to Well Connected with Dr. Joe Kavidar, a podcast series from Partners Connected Health. I'm your host, Joe Kavidar. Join me for interesting and thought-provoking conversations with the leaders, disruptors, and innovators who are redefining the future of technology-enabled health and wellness. We have a unique and exciting opportunity as we focus on the upcoming 2019 Connected Health Conference here in Boston. Partners Connected Health is honored to be the organizing partner for this world-class event, and I'm proud to serve as program chair. For this season of Well Connected, we're excited to bring you a special collection of episodes highlighting this year's keynote speakers. Each episode will not only feature a stimulating conversation with a noted thought leader, but will provide a sneak preview into their up and coming keynote presentation as well. I'm pleased to welcome today's guests, Ariel Garten and Graham Moffat of Interaxon, the makers of the award-winning Muse, the brain-sensing headband. Ariel is one of the co-founders of Interaxon and is also a neuroscientist, trained psychotherapist, of course an innovator and entrepreneur. Before founding Interaxon, she started her own international clothing line while researching Parkinson's disease and hippocampal neurogenesis. Uh, a real Renaissance woman, I would say. Uh, and there's something in there about clothing. We maybe, maybe we'll get to that uh, later, but I, I see a lot of people uh, in digital health, particularly the creative side, who've done stuff with clothing. I don't know what that's all about. But this alchemy of interest may be what set her on the path to co-found uh, Interaxon, a Silicon Valley-backed startup that allowed people to control computers with their minds, the technology that sparked the creation of the company's signature invention, Muse. In fact, this technology was the feature showcase at the Vancouver 2010 Olympics, where it allowed over 7,000 people from across the country to control the lights, on the CN Tower, the Canadian Parliament buildings, and Niagara Falls with their brains. Muse is now used around the world in five languages with over five million sessions of meditation. And Ariel and her team have been the recipients of multiple innovation awards. Among that team are Interaxon's chief scientist and vice president of regulatory affairs, Graham Moffat. Graham has two decades of experience in neurotechnology, neuroscience, and digital health, and has helped establish collaborations using Muse technology in hundreds of brain research labs and institutes around the world. Prior to joining Muse, Graham served as a chief scientist with Meta, now the Chan Zuckerberg Meta, and as managing editor of Frontiers in Neuroscience, which became the largest open access scholarly journal series in the field. Earlier in his career, he was a research engineer focused on cochlear implants. He holds a BSc in physics from McMaster University and a PhD in neuroscience from Université Aix-Marseille. He is currently a senior fellow at the Monk School of Public Policy at the University of Toronto and an advisor to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development's Neurotechnology Policy Initiative. Both Ariel and Graham will be presenting at the 2019 Connected Health Conference hosted by HIMSS and the Personal Connected Health Alliance 
taking place here in Boston, October 16th through the 18th. And that is the reason that I have them, the privilege of having them on the uh, show today. The conference theme is designing for healthy habits and better outcomes. That's a topic that I'm certain the folks behind Muse might have something to say about. So Ariel and Graham, thank you for being our guests today on Well Connected. Our absolute pleasure. Happy to be here, Joe. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for inviting us. So I'm going to start out. Uh, you, you all are going to help us kick off the Connected Health Conference here, I think the second or third talk, um, with a keynote presentation on how to optimize your brain. Give us a brief preview of what you'll be talking about at the conference. Happy to. Optimizing the brain is one of my favorite topics. When we think about optimizing the brain, you can think about really fancy interventions like nootropics or neurofeedback. We can also think about really basic things that science is now telling us that we should be doing more of, like sleeping, better nutrition, hydration, exercise. Like we all know the effects of a bad night's sleep, but did you know that just 2% water loss to the brain is enough to produce neurological symptoms like fatigue and lowered reaction times? So we have all of these habits that we try to establish as humans to help us be better on all aspects in our mind and in our body, but we're often not very good at doing them. So one of the things that we focus on here is a very specific habit that can tend to help make all the other habits easier, and that's meditation. And so we know that there is a vast growing body of evidence demonstrating meditation's ability to improve your brain and your health outcomes. It can help you improve your attention, decrease your stress, and also make real changes in your brain and your prefrontal cortex and your amygdala with long-term practices. So in our session, we'll talk about ways to help make meditation easier and to help build more effective habit loops for behavioral change. That sounds perfect. Well, and I know we're going to look forward to it. Uh, let's dig into Muse a bit. Uh, I tell you, I've, I've used the product. It's, uh, it's a fascinating product and a fascinating story. This headband gives real-time feedback on the state of your brainwaves while meditating. The app translates your brainwaves into metaphoric images and soundscapes so you can, quote, see and hear your own mind. Muse has hundreds of thousands of users, included luminaries from various fields of research, arts and medicine, and meditation, such as Deepak Chopra, Goldie Hawn, Dean Ornish, and Patrick Kennedy. It measures brain waves and helps individuals achieve a relaxed, focused mental state. So guys, help us understand a bit more how this technology works and how it's helping people uh, get a better brain. Sure, I can start with the basic description of what it is. So Muse is a brain sensing headband that helps you meditate. It's actually a clinical grade EEG with sensors on the forehead and behind the ears, and it tracks your brain during a focused attention meditation. So most of us know that meditation is good for us, but it can be really hard to do. You sit there and you try to meditate and your brain just starts bouncing all over the place and you're like, eh, like what is this meditation thing? Why am I not good at it? And then you don't meditate. You get up and you stop doing it. We wanted to change all that by actually giving people real-time feedback on their brain during meditation, showing you what's going on in your brain and guiding you into that focused attention zone so that you can actually either initiate your practice or enhance an existing practice. And it's been, you know, an incredibly effective process. Graham? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, to go one step further than that, um, one of the stories that Ariel uh, tells a little bit later when you get into details about how the, the, the technology was developed is that 
Um, in part, this was part of a neurotechnology revolution. Uh, and we're now seeing sort of the fruits of this revolution uh, manifest in things like Neuralink, which is Elon Musk's big um, neurotechnology company about interfacing with the brain. So Muse was actually aimed at um, a, a manner of controlling computers and machines initially. Um, and what we discovered early on was that in the process of trying to push these signals around to control an interface, uh, the, the early users, including um, Ariel and, and Chris, another co-founder, accidentally sort of taught themselves um, a meditation skill of focused attention. Um, that is, in order to push the EEG, the brainwave signals around, uh, you had to really master an ability to, to hold on to and let go of specific thoughts. Uh, and that ability, that metacognitive ability to recognize that you are not your thoughts and you can choose which thoughts to engage with is also one of the core skills of mindfulness meditation. So in a sense, it was it was kind of a serendipitous discovery that this technology could, uh, could substantially help uh, in learning mindfulness and meditation and help to establish that practice. Because, you know, one of the hardest things about acquiring this remarkable skill of meditation is is really uh, knowing whether or not you're getting it right and getting feedback as to whether or not you're making progress. So that has sort of come along with a revolution in, in uh, maybe I, I might call it the third wave of biofeedback. So we've had a couple of waves of biofeedback in the last 50 years, the first one being the 60s and 70s and then in the late 90s again. Uh, and now there's been a revolution, almost a sea change in the way that we treat uh, brain data coming from EEG systems and other systems using advancements in machine learning. So we can now decompose the signals much quicker uh, remotely on mobile devices. We have very powerful computers in our pockets and the smartphones and tablets that we carry around with us. And this has really revolutionized the way that we use EEG neurofeedback and other forms of biofeedback in a much more adaptive and personalized way with much more advanced signal processing technologies. So it's really pushed the technology to a much higher level. Uh, and we can individualize the way that it works for, for people. And we can even do some really fancy data science and discover new things about the brain from all the brain data that our users are willing to share with us and with, uh, with researchers. So it, it's, a, it's a very exciting time to be in the field. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, I think we're at the cusp of a major change toward neurotechnology for, and better technologies for brain health. And Muse is one great example of that. Yes, indeed it is. Again, I, I have uh, personal experience uh, uh, with the device, and I can I can vouch for all that. You know, it occurred to me while both of you were talking that there's uh, I, I know a fair amount now in in the marketplace and in in these uh, various conferences about the connection between mindfulness meditation and uh, addiction. Uh, I wondered if you you've had any experience with your device uh, in that space. Um, is addiction an FDA condition that we cannot discuss, Graham? No, I, I mean, yeah, there, there, we do have to be careful about, uh, about saying things uh, and what Muse is used for. So I think we should open with the caveat that um, Muse is a general wellness device under the low-risk guidance. Right. Uh, and it, uh, so it's not used um, in clinical settings or with clinical indications. That being said, um, there are many clinics out there uh, in which a lot of the practitioners and, and clinicians recognize the value of mindfulness meditation and are looking for different ways to deliver it, including addiction clinics. Um, so we've seen lots of uptake from psychotherapists and psychologists for a variety of different um, applications. Um, addiction is one of them. 
And what Muse really offers is a way of getting users engaged and helping them to get that practice, that mindfulness practice. So it's definitely not a, um, a first line treatment or a direct treatment for any of these kinds of conditions, but where mindfulness can help with a therapeutic process, uh, it's, it's a technological way and a way of engaging users in uh, engaging patients that, that a lot of people have found real benefit in. Before uh, establishing Muse, I had a private practice as a psychotherapist, and I would regularly be recommending meditation to my patients, and they would rare, you know, rarely ac- actually adhere to it. I would teach them how to meditate in session. They would go home. They would slightly do it. They'd come back and either have not done it or lie to me about their usage. And so in the creation of Muse, it became a really easy way for a clinician to now hand a patient or a client a device and say, okay, you want to learn how to meditate? Take this thing. And then it very you know, easily and quickly walks them through the process of beginning and maintaining their meditation practice and can even share data back with the clinician through a dashboard that we have called Muse Connect. So the clinician can even monitor the patient's usage. One of the, I think, revolutions that the field of wearables has given us as a uh, practitioners is this idea of using feedback loops and and motivational constructs and this to me is a perfect example of that how the uh, the and I again confess to uh, being one of those people that you would have been frustrated with because I my mind wanders very quickly when I try to meditate but with this constant feedback uh, of when you're hitting the mark uh, really helps you uh, hone that skill, uh, and it's a beautiful thing. It's it's simple but beautiful at the same time. Thank you. I was one of those people I was frustrated with because I too was a terrible meditator. I would be, you know, I was the clinician. I was teaching my patients to meditate, and I myself was not admittedly that great at it. I would sit down, and I too would get frustrated by the process. And it was actually through the creation of Muse that. I learned how to meditate. And then, you know, 2000 years of wisdom all of a sudden made sense. You know, all the things that I'd been reading that I've been trying to apply to my, to my life, I could finally feel the benefits of and really understand how to live through them. I know you also launched Muse2 that provides real-time feedback on your brain activity plus heart rate, breathing, and body movements. These physical cues help improve performance, physical relaxation, and fight stress. What can Muse2 teach us about our brains and our bodies? So our mind and our bodies are, as we are well aware, really intimately and intricately related. You know, we feel the effect when we have an anxious thought of feeling a sense of anxiety in our bodies. And likewise, a calming thought produces physiological response that that is akin to it. Um, We can see that when you engage in a meditation practice, you are both calming the thoughts in your mind and you're shifting your body into a parasympathetic nervous system. You're often increasing your vagal tone, you're deepening your breathing, you're lowering your heart rate. And so as much as you can start from the top down in this process, you can also start from the bottom up by decreasing your heart rate, by increasing the depth of your breath, and then by um, shifting your mind likewise. And so with Muse 2, we created a device that gives you not only real-time feedback on your brain, but also as a PPG sensor to track your heart rate and a combination of sensors to track your breathing. So we can actually let you hear the sound of your heart like the beating of a drum. Like it's not just a data point on your wrist. It's actually the literal interpretation of your heartbeat, beat by beat by beat. And through that, you can cue your interoception, your ability to become sensitively aware of your internal state and then be able to meaningfully use that information to notice what helps your 
to slow the, bre- the beating of your heart. Notice what helps your breathing calm. We give you breathing exercises that you can then use to calm your physiology. And there's a movement sensor. With a lot of people, starting with the brain is, is hard. Um, but simply starting with finding stillness in your body helps you find stillness in your mind. And so it's been really interesting working with a combination of these sensors to understand the interrelation between these systems. And I haven't done enough homework here. I should know this, but is that all packaged in the same sort of headband uh, form factor? Or do you have other um, sensors that come with yeah, that? Yeah, it's all it's all packaged into the to the Muse too. So it's we learned a lot in the in the engineering and science um, R and D process around Muse One, and um, and one of the you know among the things we learned were that we could actually detect. Um, we could detect people's heartbeats from their head movements with the, with the accelerometer in Muse One, uh, and that gave us some some really interesting ideas and some interesting avenues to experiment with. So, um, adding a few more sensors, physiologic sensors, you know, it, it's it's um, it became sort of standard to do that on fitness trackers, mm-hmm. but they weren't always that useful. And and when we when we brought these sensors into these inertial sensors and these uh, photoplethysmographs, which is you know basically the same kind of cardiac sensor on the back of an Apple Watch. Uh, it was really with experience development in mind. So, uh, you know, one of the one of the things we learned in the initial uh, development and and user testing with Muse was that it's you know there there there's more than just uh, recognizing your thoughts and the cognitive elements of meditation. There are some more fundamental things that you really want to um, help people to acquire, and that is just the ability to sit still, sit upright, um, the ability to breathe rhythmically, and to uh, to breathe with feedback. Uh, and, and then uh, also the, the kind of the, the sort of a standard practice in meditation is something like a body scan, which is really an exercise in interoception that helps people to um, learn how to listen to and perceive um, their somatosensory system around their body to perceive feelings in their body and, and to improve that relationship that they have um, with sensations in their body. And, and there's, there's some research out there that suggests that, that uh, people's ability to detect and count their own heartbeats. Uh, is strongly indicative of interoception and that that has some implications for how they handle stress and how they handle, how they process emotions. So uh, we decided that we'd, we'd create these experiences and turn these sensors into very rich experiential soundscapes where uh, we'd be playing drum beats in time with the heartbeat back to people. And even just that recognition that your heart accelerates, your heartbeat accelerates as you inhale and decelerates as you exhale is quite a powerful insight that most people don't recognize. And there are lots of those kinds of interoceptive insights that um, I think really help people improve their relationships with their bodies and help improve them uh, or improve their ability to meditate and get them more engaged in the practice. That's fascinating. I'm going to have to order one. Um, I I have the old one, so I'm I'm behind at least one version. So, and I also hear that you've been exploring sleep and continuous EEG. So as a sort of segue from... Muse too. What's uh, tell me more about that? So the um, yeah, I think we've we've had a real awakening in the public consciousness to uh, the importance of sleep in brain health, in mental health, in in physiological health, and um, in the physical sense, and and uh, popularization of that awareness. And there's been, there's been a lot of research on slow wave sleep and on REM sleep, um, not just as uh, you know, a, a marker for health, but also as a target for intervention by improving our sleep hygiene and and, and measuring sleep more effectively. I promise, I think that that we can intervene in a lot of ways uh, to positively affect people's health. So we've been focusing on this in part because, uh, you know, in order to really properly measure sleep, you have to be able to measure EEG, uh, and in order to do that, 
uh, you have to have a, uh, an EEG system that's quite comfortable to wear. So uh, for a number of years, people have been modifying muses to measure sleep and wearing muse to sleep. And uh, we've sort of been experimenting around with different ways of, of using, uh, using muse in, a, in the context of, of ongoing continuous measurement. And another driving factor in that is that the number one use case for most meditation apps, and certainly for us as well, um, is falling asleep. So we hear again and again from people, and we see it in the usage patterns by time of day. People use Muse uh, just before they go to bed most often. So the number one use case is just before bed. And then and they, even if you interview them, they say, you know, I use meditation to help me fall asleep. So Muse is a, is a, is a helpful meditation tool. Uh, so we're, we're working on that. We can't talk too much about where we're headed uh, just yet, because we've got a we've got an important reveal coming later. It's pretty exciting for us. Uh, we should be able to, you know, we're we're excited to show the Muse community and the broader digital health community what we what we're working on and, and where we think things are going. That's uh, that's so so wonderful to hear that story. I, I um, all of the trackers uh, and for your own phone for that matter can tell you a little bit about the quality of your sleep, but there's no. The, the, the level of insight and the level of what you can do about it is so uh, sort of pathetic at this point that any advances that you can bring will be, I'm sure, welcomed by the, uh, by the community. So we look forward to hearing about uh, those developments. It's really exciting work. Thank you. Yeah, we've had a lot of a lot of inbound interest, both from, you know, the Consumer and Muse users, Arm and CRO. Uh, people who are interested in continuous monitoring of EEG during day and night, which is something that we've gained a, a, a lot of experience in at this point. Great. Graham, in a, in a recent talk, you focused on emerging neurotechnologies, noting that neurotech is in the mainstream from Facebook to Elon Musk. And as machine learning gets better, I can only imagine how your technology can create a more personalized experience. So give us a sense of what we can expect uh, from uh, Interaxon in the near-term future? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that we're, we're, in a, we're in a moment where people are, are excited about the, the possibility of neurotechnology. For the first time, really, there are, there's a lot of private sector interest in neurotech. Uh, and part of that is driven by Elon Musk's um, you know, popularity and his ability to bring attention and, um, and focus to a, to, a, to a discipline or to a field. Um, but another part of it is just that there's been so much, there's been an explosion of, of research and, and new results um, stemming in part from large scale data and machine learning and some of the insights we've derived. Um, I think the field is probably at its most exciting time in, in a long, long time. Uh, so we're seeing new therapeutic avenues with brainwave entrainment, uh, with neurofeedback, with uh, direct invasive brain computer interfaces, with digital therapeutics. Uh, there, there's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, from us at Interaxon, you know, some of the things that we're doing uh, are farther farther afield. We're looking at um, at very very large uh, data sets uh, in EEG and looking at new insights and pulling things that no one had seen before out of uh, out of EEG signals. So deriving insights that that you know we thought things that we thought were noise in the EEG or in um, in neurophysiological signals, it turns out are actually sensitive to time of day and to physiology and to different things, um, and that's very exciting because it creates new targets for intervention um, and new ways of measuring brain health. Um, that's one of the things that we're working actively on and that we're very excited about. Um, and another is uh, the opportunity to get uh, to get to bring EEG into more contexts. 
So uh, sleep is one of them. If you've got, uh, if you, if you're wearing something like a Muse overnight, you're getting a hundred times more data, um, and we can tell you a lot more about your brain and how you're sleeping and what your brain health is like on that basis. Another is integration with um, what's called neuroadaptive or implicit brain-computer interfaces, so passive uh, brain-computer interfaces that rather than trying to use those interfaces to actively control something uh, through voluntary control of thought, uh, the, the interface is adapting on the basis of whether you're engaged and whether you notice things and you know what your cognitive state, how your cognitive state is changing in response to the environment you're in. Uh, this is especially promising for things that are already head-worn and that give us an opportunity to collect or to put sensors on the head. Um, so the, the, the big one right now is virtual reality. You know, virtual reality, I think, is, is turning a corner and really exploding into the popular consciousness and uh, in applications like gaming and, um, and even in therapy in hospitals. Uh, so we're really seeing an opportunity here to, uh, to derive new insights from the stimulus environment that someone sees in a virtual reality game or virtual reality environment uh, and to, to create new experiences on the basis of biosignals and brain signals. Um, those, are, those are sort of the areas that are particularly exciting for us. Um, the other one is that, yeah, the other one is that, uh, you know, Muse has now come down in cost uh, since the early days. So it started out at uh, $300 US, $299. And, and um, because we've continued to iterate and innovate, uh, we're now down the Muse 2016 model, which doesn't have all of the sensors of the newest one, uh, still for sale. That's 149 US. So that that expansion of access um, creates uh, a real enthusiasm within the neurotechnology community and, and, and an expansion of access to this kind of technology. Uh, so we've seen a lot of uptake in educational markets and in uh, research uh, using low-cost sensors like Muse in neuroscience, in basic neuroscience research and applied neuroscience research inside and outside of university laboratories and, and different environments, uh, and even getting into high school science classes. So uh, getting people excited about brain research and excited about brain technology, um, you know, it used to take, uh, if you wanted to learn about EEG or, or brain biosignals, uh, you'd have to you'd have to get to university, and you might be in you might get a chance to go to a lab in your third year. And now that technology is finding its way into high school science classes all over Canada and the United States, and that's very exciting because it it means that there'll be a whole new generation of researchers who come in with uh, you know, at a very high level um, relatively early on and can really push things forward. Great stuff, Ariel. What are your thoughts about the future? So my thoughts about the future always stem around how it is that we can understand our internal state and use that to more effectively navigate the world around us. You know, part of my driving mission in life is to help people understand that the voices in your head don't need to drive your thoughts and your behaviors. And you can have a choice to shut down those voices, to shut down the inner critic, to be able to live a happier life. One of the saddest stats that I ever heard was that 85% of the world has low self-esteem. And that means that 85% of us are feeling a little bit crappier about ourselves every single day than we need to. And so I feel there's a massive opportunity there to help people understand that our internal dialogues do not need to create the reality of ourselves and our worlds and to be able to shift those dialogues to allow people to both feel better about themselves every day and feel safer and happier in connection with one another. So, you know, my, my real dream is that if everybody meditated, we would have uh, a far healthier, happier, more connected world. There you go. Well, I have my own challenges with inner critics, so I very much can uh, definitely understand what you're saying. I think we all do. Yeah, yeah we all do. We all do. Indeed. We all do. Yeah. It's the nature of being human. 
So this is fascinating work. I thank you both for making the time to join us today on Well Connected. Uh, of course, I'm very much looking forward to welcoming you to the Connected Health Conference in October. Again, that's going to be October 16th through the 18th in Boston. Uh, listeners, mark your calendars. We, we would love to see you there this, this year's. Uh, lineup of content is going to be uh, rival anything we've ever done. So it's a very exciting time and a, and a wonderful uh, um, group of, of folks uh, that will be there. So I thank you again, uh, Ariel and uh, Graham. Any any parting thoughts? Anything I should have asked you? Anything else you want to tell our audience? No, it, it's been a Real pleasure chatting with you. You know, we're we're big fans of uh, of partners and and of the, the conference and, and all of the work that you do. We've had great collaborations with you on on some of the research projects in the past, and we're very excited to be attending the conference this year. Great. So thanks for having us. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Well Connected with Dr. Joe Cavita. A special thanks for me personally to Tony McMillan, our engineer, and Lynn Josephson, our senior marketing manager for putting this series together. If you enjoyed our show and want to know more, visit our website at partners.org forward slash connected health, all one word. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Connected Health. For more episodes of our series, search Partners Connected Health on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to podcasts.